0: Today's scripture reading is Proverbs 3, 1 through 10. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be like, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is God's word. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Chris Bennett. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, it is... Always great to be with you. We are in a continuing series on the book of Proverbs. And um, one of the things that we had to do, I, th- I really think we had to do, was take several weeks and engage with some of the apparent promises and assurances that are given in the book of Proverbs. Um, I think I was, uh, my wife and I were talking this week, we're having a date day and talking about hermeneutics. Um... She was endearing it with me. So um, as we were talking, I, was, I told her, I said, you know, when I re- when I, I really be- I've really come to believe that when we read the Bible, something that we really need to look for is our reaction to Scripture. What does it do to us? Does it make us angry? Do we recoil and hide ourselves from a particular truth or statement or verse or belief because it doesn't sit well with us? Um, Or do we co-opt certain verses without really taking the time to study and think them through in context and use them for our own agenda? There's a lot of ways that we react to Scripture, and I think it really helps to look at the way that our own hearts react to it. And I know that for me, when I read about some of the assurances that are given in Proverbs about faithfulness to God... And what we can expect to happen in our lives if we are faithful to God, then sometimes we trip on it, sometimes I trip on that. I think about Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 through 10 that Brent just read, that if we are faithful to God, obedient to our parents, if we raise our kids in the way that they should go, if we... Um, spend our money and manage our money properly, then we can expect certain things to happen in our lives, such as long life, um, health, prosperity. Um, Our vats will overflow, if you have one of those. Uh, Our barns will be filled with plenty. All of these promises and assurances are made, and yet in the daily grind of life even though I've seen many, many stories of God's faithfulness and God's love and God's blessings in people's lives. And sincerely, I rejoice with you. And when Jeremy prays, we pray that God would bless you with favor in the workplace and um, the things that you need in your lives, the things that might bring you joy. We really do want that to happen to you. I want it to happen to me. Yet Pastorally, when I'm boots on the ground living, I'm interacting with people who have different stories at times. For instance, a brother in the church who, for years, has worked in an incredibly toxic workplace. And I'm not overstating this. A brother who has been faithful to his managers, to his leaders, his employers. A brother who works hard not to bring drama to the workplace. A brother who is diligent to dispel toxicity and drama and to be an encouraging voice and to have a positive effect where he works. So much so that over the years, his righteousness and his integrity has become a threat to people that he works with. And because of the envy and the jealousy that some of these people have toward him, this ultimately long story that I can't tease out here, led to his dismissal. But not only his dismissal from his work, but him being blacklisted with all of their sibling organizations around the city of Memphis. Where is his favor with God and with man? This is one of the reasons why we understand that Proverbs are not a book of absolutes and promises. They are the likely outcomes that can happen in our lives as we honor God with our decisions and our choices and our way of living. I think about another sister in the church who for months and months has been dealing with strange symptoms Doctor after doctor after doctor, um, second opinion, third opinion, fourth opinion. No one can diagnose these strange and frightening symptoms that she's having. And then just recently finds herself at the doctor and they were able to identify it as a rare and dangerous disease that will need immediate and aggressive treatment. What about refreshment to her bones? What about that? Now, we're praying for these folks. We're laying hands on these people. We do what the Scriptures say. We believe in healing at our church. As a matter of fact, after church today, we're going to be praying for one brother and doing what the Scriptures say in the book of James, anointing him with oil and praying the prayer of faith over this brother. He was obedient to Scripture. He called for the elders of the church to come and lay hands on him. So please make no mistake. I am not ambiguous about this. But this does raise questions. What do we do when we see the Bible says one thing and our life experience seems to clash with that? How do we reconcile this? Or do we just bury our head in the sand, suppress our questions, suppress our turmoil? Because I know where that goes. That just causes our doubt and our cynicism to grow and swell within us. And I don't want that to happen to you, my friends. I want our church to be a place where childlike faith and dependence on Jesus can be nurtured and can take you over. I want you to have an innocence and a naivete to your dependence on God that is unshakable because I want that in my life. And so we've got to walk into this. Otherwise, when we read Proverbs there's going to be a bunch of verses that we come in contact with that we won't even be able to accept as truth because we trip over it. And so we've got these stories, our own experiences, people who we've come in contact with who have suffered greatly. As a matter of fact, and, and please, I'm not trying to... Uh, just honestly, honest question. If you would raise your hand if this is true. Do you, have you known anyone, anyone who appears to have a devoted life to Jesus and who has suffered great affliction. Would you raise your hand if you know people like that? Look around. That's a lot of folks. That's a lot of folks. You don't think that has an impact on our singing and on our praying? And our, when we sing things like, God will never let me down, and we know people who've been let down, that doesn't impact the way that we view God? And so we've got to face this and dig into this question and see what Jesus has to tell us today. And so uh, last week, which is typical around here, I started a sermon that I didn't finish. Um, all of my sermons are, are, almost all of them in my iCloud are unfinished. They're not finished. I didn't finish preaching them. Um, I'll have like eight pages of notes and I'll get through two pages and sometimes I have a couple of rabbit trails. That happens like once or twice a year. Um, but what I said last week was this, is that I want us to feel the full weight, the full weight of God's Word when it comes to these issues. I want us to walk out of here today having felt immersed in Scripture. And so, it may feel like a bit of a Bible drill for a little while, but it's only because I want us to find ourselves standing in Scripture and everywhere we turn, we are being hit with truth everywhere. I want our assumptions about God's goodness to be tested and I want them to be refined so that when we walk out of here, our faith will be stronger, our dependence on Him will be stronger and our doubt will be diminished. I really want that to happen to your life today. And so not only do we have... External circumstances where people have suffered that we know who really love Jesus. But we also see it filling, seemingly, the pages of Scripture. I think about a man named Joseph in the book of Genesis, who all he did, the only crime he committed was as a young man, he got really, really excited about his future and the dreams that God gave him. His biggest offense was his idealism. And he went and shared with his brothers a dream that God gave him, and his brothers became very threatened by that. One thing led to another. They end up selling him into slavery, and then telling their father, Joseph, that he's been killed by wild animals, and they take this coat of many colors, which was this 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 gift that his father had given him, a delight that he had taken in his son. They tore it, they covered it in blood, and they presented it to Joseph, and Joseph's heart sank. He was devastated. Devastated at the loss of his beloved son. Joseph, Jacob, I'm sorry, the dad, Joseph finds himself sold into slavery, he ends it, and things go from bad to worse. He ends up in prison. And for years and years and years, he is languishing in affliction and suffering. There's no record of him committing any sin against God. There's no record of him doing wrong. As a matter of fact, at one moment when he was seduced, which i got to be honest with you, when life is going really bad and a really beautiful woman is trying to seduce him, you could make the rationalization maybe God is going to give me a freebie here. Maybe I can have a little bit of fun for a couple of minutes. But even at his weakest and most vulnerable, Joseph decides, I will not dishonor God. And he runs from that. And even in his righteous response to being sexually seduced by another person, he's sold or he's given a, uh, he finds himself in prison. Again, languishing and suffering. This is, he was there for so long that when finally he's reunited with his brothers, apparently he had grown up and they did not recognize him. Most of his life spent suffering, and he was a good dude. He was a good dude. I think about Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel. And Jeremiah, two of the few who stood in the midst of pagan Israel, Israel that had embraced paganism and idolatry and had dishonored God in their whole culture and their whole society. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah were saying, be faithful to God, calling them to faithfulness. And yet Ezekiel and Jeremiah are watching their homes and even their beloved city of Jerusalem burn to the ground. And they were faithful to God. They were faithful to God. I think about the psalmists. All of the psalmists, mainly David, but there are others who wrote and contributed to the psalms who said things like this in Psalm 73, 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain. You ever felt that way before? I've kept my nose clean. I've honored God. I've been obedient And everybody else around me is prospering and I'm suffering. What's up with that? I can relate to that. I think about the book of Job, probably the most untaught book in the Bible. Why? Because it offends our sensibilities. We have no context for a person like Job that God calls righteous and then allows to be tested with tremendous suffering. We've got no context for it, so we skip it. We skip it. One of my greatest fears is to preach Job. I'm afraid this church wouldn't exist after four weeks. Where would you all go? It's depressing. It's frightening. It's horrific. But it's smack dab in the middle of our Old Testament. A man who loved God, who was faithful, and who suffered. He suffered. I think about Proverbs, about how it talks about people who live in a certain way, can experience prosperity, and yet that I'm confronted with Proverbs 22, verse 22, where it says this, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. Those three words, at the gate, are huge. It reminds us that he's not just talking about people, generically poor people in our world. He's talking to Israelites who live in the city of Jerusalem, who are faithful to God, and yet he tells his political leaders, Solomon, Solomon's sons, make sure that you do not exploit or ignore the poor and the needy at the gates. So there's at least a possibility even introduced in the book of Proverbs that you can be faithful to God and still not experience the provision that you may want. And he turns to who? the people of God, and he says, take care of them. Take care of them. I don't think I'm taking any of this out of context. I really don't. Um, I'm trying to be as honest as I can. I think about a man named Eager. It's a beautiful name. We were gonna, if we had another child, we'd name him Ager. Um or our daughter, Agar. And uh, Agar is one of the contributors to the book of Proverbs. And the only prayer that is listed in the entire book of Proverbs is at the end of the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. And Agur says this. Remember, the only prayer in Proverbs. And here's what Agur prays. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. So two things. Here's the first. Verse 8 of chapter 30. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And here's the second thing. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now what you're not going to hear me say is riches are wrong. I'm not going to say that because I don't think the Bible teaches that. But Agur says, don't give me poverty and don't give me riches. And here's why. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. In other words, give me what I need. Give me what I need. That's all I ask for. Why? Why does he say this? Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. That's a a really humble prayer. He's saying, God, I know that I'm broken. I know that if I'm living high on the hog, I will forget you. And I know that if I live in abject poverty, I will steal and I will lose myself. So God, please protect me from my sin. Just give me what I need. Help me to be content in you. I think about, let's go to the New Testament. I think about Jesus who specifically taught in Matthew chapter 6. And it blows my mind how all the prosperity preachers over the last 15 years never taught this. Matthew chapter 6, remember Jesus is talking to his would-be followers and he's preaching in such a way to identify who his true followers are. And in one of the most beautiful verses, Matthew 6, 33, Seek first, anybody know this verse? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what will happen? All these things will be added unto you. And I love, well, I don't love, because I wish it was more than that, but all these things you can find in the previous 20 or 25 verses. And he says this, God will give you, he will provide for you when you're thirsty, when you're hungry, and when you need clothing. He says, don't worry about tomorrow, it's full of troubles. Just keep your mind in today. Trust me. And in that context, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we don't read that in context, we think all those things are amazing homes, crazy awesome new cars. I'm not against amazing homes and crazy awesome new cars. As a matter of fact, we're going to receive an offering for a new car for me at the end of this service. So I'm, I'm totally into that. Um, I'm joking. I'm joking. We're not going to do that. i um, I'm joking. Maybe I crossed the line there. I don't know. Um, Let you be the judge of that. But he specifically says, trust God with those things. He will provide everything that you need. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. So many of us, I put me here too, struggle with just the provisions that God will provide for us because man, I'm believing God for so much more. I need so much more. I want so much more. I hunger and thirst for so much more. And that brings me back to the beginning of this sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew 5, that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. Jesus is giving us the framework for what it looks like to be one of his disciples. That's Jesus. What about the Jerusalem church? I wonder why Proverbs didn't work for them. In in the book of Acts, we see a church that they were suffering so much financially and with even having food and having enough that part of the impetus of the Apostle Paul leaving and preaching around the world was so that he could raise money to take care of the Jerusalem church. Jews who grew up in Judaism who converted to Christianity, who knew very well the writings of Proverbs, and yet we see no Scripture in the book of Acts where they raise their fists and say, why aren't my vats overflowing and my barns filled with plenty? I'm not saying they didn't feel that at times. I don't want to idealize the early church. They had their knuckleheads just like we have our knuckleheads. They had people who were young in their faith just like we have people who were young in the faith. We have people, they had their people who were full of pride just like we have people that are full of pride. They have all that stuff too. All of that stuff too. But what we see in the book of Acts are not a people who are fighting for, to get their stuff. We don't see that. We see a people who are being guided by godly men and women who are being coached to fight for their affections for Jesus because Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. He's simply better than all that. We go to the book, of he- the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, and we come in contact with a body of believers. We don't know where. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews was. All we know is that this is a pastoral person who is writing to this church that grew up in Judaism, who are suffering for their faith in Jesus and are being tempted to, to retreat back into Judaism and reject Jesus. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you came to Jesus, after your hearts were converted... And you went from not being interested in Jesus to I can't get enough of him. You went from Jesus is a joke and he's no fun to I need Jesus in my life. I believe in Jesus. When you were enlightened, here's what happened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, presumably for their faith, in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What? I would lose my mind if somebody stole my stuff. I would be so angry. I would feel so violated. And and they probably did. They were probably angry too. But they learned to joyfully accept the plundering of their property. Why? Proverbs, if what about favor with God and man? What about prosperity? What about all that stuff? Why did they joyfully accept that? How did they know to joyfully accept that kind of suffering? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You have a better possession and one that cannot be taken away. You knew that. That's what got you through that. It was terrible. Let's not gloss over and, you know, put makeup on this. They probably, I mean, they suffered. They were probably sad. They felt angry. But they learned to fight for joy because they believed deep down that they had something better and something they could never, ever lose. Jesus. It wasn't just a cliche to them. It wasn't just a cliche. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Man, I wish that said most people. I wish that said some in certain dispensations of Christian history, I wish it said that. It doesn't. It says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I remember having a, a lunch one time with a guy who, uh, not here, um, but was really struggling with an emphasis in my preaching at that point in time. This was years ago. Uh, with an emphasis in my preaching on suffering. I felt that our church at the time had no context for affliction, for adversity, and I, was, I felt like I needed to pastor them through that and help develop that part of their Christian faith. And I remember him having a lot of pushback with that. And he told me point blank, he said, the only, the only time that the Bible advocates that Christians should suffer is when it relates to the preaching of the gospel. They should suffer for their faith, not with other things like sickness or financial struggles or anything else. And so then I took him to these two texts that I'm going to give you now. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's talking to general followers of Jesus, nameless, faceless people that we will only meet in the New Jerusalem. And he says, count it joy when you suffer various trials. The idea here is not necessarily trials related to to preaching the gospel and evangelizing. It is the normal trials that come with living life in this broken world. The normal trials and hardships that believer and non-believer will face in this world. This is the kind of trials he's talking about. Then he says this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Without trials and testing, you're not going to grow in Jesus. You are not going to grow in Jesus without hard times. You are not going to grow in Jesus without adversity. So quit saying, Satan, get thee behind me devil, you quit binding the devil. I'm not saying love what happens. I know that there are times that there are particularly powerful demonic assaults against our lives. But I would argue that even in those times, even in those times, we need to remember that we are, one, protected by Jesus and seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. He will never forsake us. He will never leave us. And even when we are under the most satanic duress, we can still exploit everything the devil intended for our, for our bad. And we can use that and snub his face. Does that make sense? Snub his I don't know. Whatever. You know what I mean. We can, we can snub his face and we can use that for our own ability to grow in Jesus and depend more on him. I know that's easier said than done. I know that. I know that. I know that the next time adversity crashes on the shores of my life, I'm going to be crying in the fetal position. I know that. I know me. I don't take pain very well. But I'm telling you, this is what the Scriptures teach us, and we can take comfort in this as we fight for joy, reach for joy. And he says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. It goes on to say that God gives really, really generously. It's interesting because James is like the New Testament parallel of the book of Proverbs. James is the book of wisdom. James gets into the weeds of life and tells us how to deal with all the stuff that there aren't real clear verses on in the New Testament. And he says, man, I'm going to say everything that you go through that's hard, I'm going to call that various trials. And i want going to tell you what to do with various trials. Reach for Jesus. Count it joy. Learn to consider it an opportunity to rejoice in Jesus when you are facing adversity. Learn to do that. You're not going to get that at an invitation when somebody prays for you. You're going to learn that as you faithfully serve Jesus, as you crawl along, as you stumble along, as you blunder along, as you remain faithful in Jesus and remember that you're loved and he's never going to take his hand off your life and you will grow into this kind of character, this kind of dependency on Jesus. Again, I know I'm elevated up here. I don't speak from a uh, uh, man from, from my ivory tower. i got to live this out too. And this stuff's scary, scary. I don't like adversity. I don't like pain. I'm with you in that. But if you think the Bible says that following Jesus means you've got to get out of jail ticket, then you're wrong. That's just not what Scripture teaches. It's just not. Jesus is with us in our pain. He's with us in our agony. He's with us. He's with us. And then I look at Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. Romans 8, 16 through 18. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. Now, I want to di- dispel some stuff here. That doesn't mean that if you truly are born again, you're never going to doubt, you're never going to struggle, you're never going to question God's goodness. But what I do think that means is that underneath all of that, underneath those times of doubting and skepticism, if you belong to Jesus, you know it. The Spirit resonates with your spirit. The Holy Spirit, you know that you complement Him. You know you're supposed to be with Him. You know that you are of Him. You're not the way you used to be. Yes, we experience that impulse, that pull to turn back to the things of old. We experience that. We experience temptation to walk away from God, to drift away from Jesus. But deep down underneath all that stuff, if you're really, really, really conscious of the condition of your heart, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain, in the midst of questions... You know, if you're a child of God, that this is true of you. The Holy Spirit resonates with your spirit. You belong to him. You belong to him. I want you to feel that for a second. Let's not run ahead. Because I know that in a country where it's so easy to be a Christian, there are a lot of people who aren't who think that they are. And some of us are frightened to death. But that's not true of me, Chris. I don't don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this intimacy with the Holy Spirit that you're describing. Okay, that's a good place to start. That's the best place to start. I don't know him. I'm not even sure I really need him. Self-sufficiency is my worldview. I can power through this. I want you to feel that. I want you to think about that. I want you to interact with that. I want you to begin listening to the condition of your heart more and more. Um, I try to preach vulnerably at times, because, not because I have some narcissistic complex. I don't think I do. Um, but really my goal is that I see so many people in the church who don't know how to be known They're afraid of that. They're afraid to live vulnerably. And living vulnerably has saved my life, it's saved my ministry. Being honest with who I am, being honest with Jesus, has saved me. And so I say this not to impress you or to um, hopefully run you away from our church, because you might feel that impulse. Um, but I found myself this week when I was studying these scriptures, when I was preparing this sermon, I found myself more excited to preach and hopefully knock one out of the park than really know Jesus and experience his presence through his word. Um, I'm not trying to be pious. I'm really not. But it just occurred. I was sitting. I was like reading and studying. I was like, it dawned on me. And I literally pushed back. I was standing up and I pushed back. and I was like, Holy cow. I don't even care if Jesus shows up this Sunday. I just want this sermon to be amazing. I was so convicted by that. We have to listen to what's going on inside of us, man. So many of us push this stuff down, we suppress this stuff. And it led me into like repentance, like deep repentance. Like, God, these people don't need me to hit a home run today, these people need me to be like a worship leader. Like to come and like come together and lead us. Almost like they did in the songs. The, we have the Psalms of Ascent where they're uh, not ascents like something smells bad, like ascent going up. And the, song, the Psalms of Ascent where they're all pilgrimaging to, to Jerusalem and they're singing these songs that are in the latter half of the book of songs and they're just anticipating being with Jesus, being with, being with Yahweh, who we know as Jesus now. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then it says this, Ugh, I, don't, I don't want this to be there, provided that we suffer with Him. I think I'll do a series, provided that we suffer with Him. I wonder how many, how many times that will be downloaded <laughs> around the world, provided that we suffer with Him. In order that we may be glorified with Him. I never knew how to internalize that verse. Because this is the same Paul who preaches that the just will live by faith. This is the same Paul who preaches that, that, in essence, that anything that we have is because Jesus merited that for us. We didn't, wherever we are in Jesus, we didn't get there by our own doing. That's a gift from God. And yet he says, we need to suffer with Jesus. We're children of God if we suffer with Jesus. And I'm convinced that what he's saying here is not, hey, to make sure you're saved, go find some suffering and immerse yourself in it. I don't think he's saying that. I don't think we should go look for suffering. I don't think we should pray that God would make us suffer. I don't think we should do that. But hardship will come. And the question is, Who are we going to take into that hardship with us? Are we going to take Jesus with us? Or are we going to take a humanistic, Americanized worldview that says that I shouldn't have to suffer and I'm entitled to a good and easy life? Or maybe a jacked up theological view that says bad things are happening in my life, maybe I did something wrong. And next week you are going to be absolutely immersed in Scripture that reminds you that on your worst day, that when you've made the worst decisions, that when you have fouled up your life, that when you have tripped and stumbled and fallen, that if you belong to Jesus, then you have not taken yourself out of God's will and you've not removed yourself from God's hand. You belong to Him. He loves you. He adores you. Now, this is only true of children of God. You could be a child of God. I almost said you can be a children of God. You can be a child of God. And what I would advise you to do, and it's not like you could just make God happen in your heart, because salvation is not just some prayer that you pray. You don't make God save you. Salvation is a supernatural phenomenon where the Spirit brings your heart to life. Now, there's a good clue that that's happening if you want it to happen if you want god to bring your spirit to life then that's probably evidence that it's happening and that's really really good if you don't want god to bring your heart to life and you don't want anything to do with the things of jesus you can answer a thousand invitations and that's not going to do anything for you so i'm going to ask you to engage what you're feeling engage your heart i want you to ask yourself some probing questions do i really want the things of jesus Do I want it? Because I've told you all the bad news today. All the stuff that happens that could happen if you follow Jesus. Next week, because I didn't finish my sermon again, next week we're going to glory in Jesus. We're going to learn everything that Jesus has given us, everything that he's done for us, everything. And I cannot wait to preach that word. I cannot wait. In the meantime, I love you. I want you to grow in Jesus. I want you to mature in your faith. I want you to learn to have courage and to live a life of vulnerability and open your heart to God and take a risk by opening your heart to God's people even though they're knuckleheads sometimes, I being chief of them. And together, let us become a chorus of worship and praise and adoration as we learn how to plow through and depend on Jesus as we live life in this broken world. God, I pray your blessings on your people. I pray, Father God, that you would deliver us. Deliver us, God. That when a black cat walks in front of us, we don't have bad luck. That when we break a mirror, we don't have to suffer for seven years. Deliver us of that kind of thinking that we take to the scriptures, that we take into our faith, that if we mess up, if we, if we, if we struggle, if we blow it, then that means God's hand of love is taken off of us. Remind us, God, that you adore us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Remind us of that, O God. Remind us, O God. Remind us and help us to persevere in hard times. Help us to reach for joy and dependence on You. Grow deep roots in our lives. Grow strong branches and let our lives be a shade to those who are suffering in this world. I pray this over your people. And I pray that if anyone else is here today and they're thinking, man, I need Jesus. I pray that that person would take a risky step and just come find me or one of our leaders at the end today. And we start taking steps together and following Jesus. In your name I pray, Lord. I bless your people, amen.